0: Hello and uh, welcome. You're listening to What Divines Us. My name is Rabbi Abram. And my name is Reverend Matthew Schultz. (laughs) And we're going to talk a little about religion today. Uh, So we've got a couple of segments for you um, for this particular episode of What Divines Us. We're going to start off with our Religion 101. And Matt and I are going to talk a bit about how we write our sermons for Religion 101. We thought I'd put you through that process and see how that goes.
1: Yeah. Uh, So who wants to start? You want to start? I'll start by asking you a question. I'm I'm very familiar with the traditional Christian church structure. In the Protestant church and Presbyterian church, it would often be, you know, there's words of welcome and then a few liturgical elements. Then there's the reading of scripture and then the sermon. So um, in in my tradition, we say that's the word read and the word proclaimed. Just some catchphrases there. And that proclamation can be a spoken sermon or it can be liturgical dance or it can be a musical presentation. Wait, did and you, you say liturgical dance. I did. Yeah. And, uh, I, I have in the past made some fun of that, but honestly I've, I've come around to not being such, uh, you know, so exclusive artistically there's, there's a whole tradition of it. Well, it's not my personal, uh, it's not my natural way to express myself. I'm a terrible dancer. Um, but having seen some liturgical dance presented, it's it's really lovely, and people dance their expression of what that reading was. Does the whole community dance? Or just... Oh, no, no, no. Uh, there's one person that comes in and has a prepared thing. The most recent one I saw was, was ballet style, but there's lots of styles you can... You know, just like uh, the written word can be lots of genres, the... The danced word can be a lot of different uh, styles. The danced word. Yeah. Oh my. I'll God, tell you, man, man. This is not at all the topic we thought we'd be talking about. But. <laughs> this, is the,
0: this is the first time. I did think there was a possibility
1: to dance your sermon. I again, to sermonize a dance? You wouldn't want me to do it, and I, I don't know that I would say most places do it as the sermon. Oh. But it's an okay. expression of our faith in a different format, just like painting could be, or pottery, and you know, lots of different art forms. We tend to elevate the written and or spoken word for some reason as if it's the best artistic form of expression. Uh, but, you know, that's that's probably not true. Oh, my gosh. Look at us on a tangent already. I'm, I'm we haven't go, even started. In after this episode, I'm going to go to
0: YouTube <laughs> and type in liturgical dance yeah. and
1: see what I get. Now, bear in mind the, the percentage that my high school English teacher said when we asked him if he liked rap music and he said 90% of it is crap. And we laughed and he said, but that's because 90% of any genre is crap. So when you're Googling it or YouTubing it, bear in mind, you're going to get a lot of bad stuff too. Um, But sift through it and find the joy. You'll find some good stuff. I think I might like all of it. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, back to sermons. Yes. In, in our tradition, let's say a one-hour service, oftentimes the sermon tends to be toward the second half of it, tends to be the, I don't know if I'd say centerpiece, but it's the part that, you know, is 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 kind of the, maybe I'll say the centerpiece. It's, it's an important part, and it takes up um, a significant amount of the time of the service. Is that similar to in your tradition?
0: Uh, y- yes, yes and no. Um, I mean, so our sermon or our service is very, very structured, uh-huh. um, with very specific things to say and do and whatnot. Uh, but I would say that the, the length of the sermon can very much vary, not just depending on like rabbi, but depending on what the occasion yes. is. Yeah. Uh, so I, as I imagine on the big holidays, you might write something a little bit longer, but actually I'm, quite the opposite
1: on opposite. Yeah. Oh. On the big holidays, Christmas and Easter, we will get a lot more guests, uh-huh. and so I try to be a bit more brief and accessible. Really?
0: Because on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh-huh. our big holidays, I tend to write more Interesting. And say more. It's like, I don't know, Like we're. I think in Judaism, our life cycle events are very short, and inversely, our big holidays are, are quite long, Okay. okay. Uh, and I just add to that tradition by adding a little bit of a longer sermon, yeah. I guess um (laughs) but uh but yeah so really though um honestly i try to keep my sermons less than 10 minutes long oh okay i know and uh i I have like predecessors that would do the 45 minute long sermon every single shabbat right right so i'm i'm on i'm definitely on the shorter side yeah but i just don't i just my kind of like philosophy of sermons is just like there's nothing, 45 minutes is a long time
1: for me to say stuff to people and, and, yeah. and, and assume they're going to get all of that. I agree. And, and, and I don't know if that's just cause it's what I'm used to, but I, I aim for between 10 and 20 minutes. I would say 12 to 15 is the most common for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. but is that just cause I'm used to it? Does that, I mean, you know, I, so I'm a little bit younger
0: than you, Matt, but yeah. as I get older, my sermons are getting longer. So like yeah. my suspicion is that maybe when maybe like a decade from now, I've added maybe like three to five minutes onto my sermon. You know, maybe I'm yeah. adding like five minutes per decade. If you think, if
1: I think also about constantly, <laughs> constantly, I have people tell me to talk slower. Yeah, and I'm like, well, then the sermon's going to be longer, pal. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, this is a real problem for me. I've for my whole life, Matt,
0: I've had yeah. a speech impediment. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, um, I used to when I was a kid. I used to stutter. Uh like on everything Hmm. and uh, years of speech therapy has helped me. But the thing about speech impediments is that they don't actually ever go away. It's still in there. Like in my
1: brain somewhere, you're just managing it it it. coming every time. And I manage it. Yeah. Yeah. How amazing that you went into a line of work where speaking is a huge part of it, not just the sermons, but lots of stuff. I had this amazing moment where my speech
0: therapist that I had here when I I grew up here in Anchorage,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: She came to one of, my, uh, one of my services once. No way. Yeah, it was a crazy moment. Yeah, she got to see me work
1: and that give a sermon. sermon. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. went to speech therapy throughout elementary school for the letter R. R, huh? And just never got it until, gosh, <laughs> seventh grade, I think. I would run and hide from the word squirrel. It was just the worst word ever. Squirrel. Well, how would you say it? Squirrel. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah it, was so hard. it was really hard. I couldn't say my name because uh, vowels in the front of words tripped me up. So oh. my name was Abram, right? Uh-huh. So it was kind of like, uh, A- Abram, right? Wow. And that's how I had to get it out. I that's, never would have picked up on it. That, yeah. That's well managed. But, but what happens, though, if you hear me go really fast for whatever reason, uh-huh. that's my impediment trying to get in the way uh-huh. of, me, of me doing it. And so I have to tell myself, slow down, Abram. It's like, slow it down. So if I don't go
1: slow, I go too fast, so let's throw in another element, then. So yeah. how fast there's how much we've prepared to yeah. say. There's how fast we're saying it, and then for me the other element is how bored do I get listening to myself, <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. I try to keep it moving along quickly yeah. from you know point to point to point to point and not dwell too long. Yeah, because if I'm bored, surely the listener is bored. <laughs> surely. Yeah,
0: sure, surely, surely. Uh, and yeah, so I think about that too. I uh, so. That's why I keep mine kind of short, yeah. Right, because I want to get in, get my point, in, and get out. Uh-huh. Right. So that's one. So just to prevent that that level of boredom. You know, I often practice delivering my sermons quite a uh-huh. bit, uh, just so I have kind of I can, can, can get the inflection
1: right, or I feel okay. like I keep it a little more interesting that way. Now, now here's another question for you. Then. Yeah. Uh, when I am practicing or rehearsing, I usually only do the transitions from point to point. The middle sections of those, I try to just keep in my mind, but I feel like if I rehearse it too much or practice it too much, it becomes stale or canned. And so I want it to be fresh and have an, have the feeling of more extemporaneous. It's not entirely extemporaneous, but to some extent. So rather than write out all the words or even all the beats of a story, I'll say something like, you know, tell the firefighter story. And so then I'll go, but I won't have rehearsed it. I'll only have rehearsed how that story transitions into the next bit. Uh, what do you do? I'm
0: bit the same. Um, whenever I have a story to tell, I try. I try to just tell it without yeah. reading anything. Yeah. Uh, but I also. But but I do write everything out just okay. to have it. Uh, and I wish I was a little bit further away from that. Like, I wish I was able to sort of like, memorize my whole sermon in one way or another and just like tch, deliver it. Uh-huh. I'm just not there yet, I feel like, yeah. in my it? But, uh, but that's my big goal of mine is to be there.
1: And I don't think memorizing it is the way to go. I think memorizing the, like, the general flow of it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but when I see people reciting and memorizing, you can tell. And that feels really yeah, staged. Sure. Yeah, but yeah, if yeah. it's more talky. And I feel like that takes way more preparation time. Yeah, than writing it down does because you have to really have it ingrained. Right, right. And And my memory is short. (laughs) (laughs) And we only have a week, right? We only have a week. Unless you're ahead of this game. Like you ever watch TED Talks Yes, and how awesome they are, and they're so polished, and they do it all from memory. You're really they impressed. They don't do it from memory. though. They do one per year. No, they don't do it from memory. Oh, do they have like they have, a little, they have, they little, have little prompters? Oh, uh-huh. see, even yes. more reason. And they yeah. have
0: like more than one, and so yeah. they're able to move their head and look at them. So that so they're not That's actually a trick. it's a trick. Yeah, yeah. Though yeah. so I, I imagine some of them probably have it memorized. I don't want. I don't want to like
1: diminish yeah. those that worked really hard. To you don't want to get a mean letter from Ted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, now but, you mentioned before we start talking that you have an education degree. Is yeah. that what I heard? Yeah. So in speaking or giving sermons, how does that come into play? Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I didn't prepare you for that question. <sighs> well, so first of all, uh, just just a quick uh,
0: thing about Judaism. So yeah. we we have what's called the the Torah. The, we call it Parsha, but it's the Torah portion of the week, right? So think of the first five books mm-hmm. of the Bible, and then split that up into like, uh, like a year's worth of time. You go through each part, so th- after one year, you've gotten through the, f- the first five books, right? Gotcha. Uh-huh. So split it evenly between the 52 weeks. So we call ours the lectionary. Yeah. yeah. Similar similar kind of deal. Lectionary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, and so every Jewish community in the whole world is always on the same portion. Okay. Every 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 portion has a name, and we're always on the same portion. Wow! Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so that which is really cool because yeah. we're all connected. You could go traveling somewhere, no matter where and you jump go, jump right back into yeah, this. You're okay. in, yeah. And so uh, often the way that I sort of write my sermons is I sort of I try to base it off of the, that particular portion sure. of that week. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. where I start. I often yeah. start there, um, and and every so but but remember it's a reset button. So like every year. We're going over the port, the five books again, okay, and again and again and again. Yeah, uh, and so you know those rabbis who are a little bit older,
1: you know they've they've written many sermons on the same portion of the of yeah. the Bible. So we have a three year cycle of lectionary texts, and also not everyone's on the lectionary. I currently am not following the lectionary at all. Mm-hmm. So each week I could do something brand new, right? And, and I do. I, I love it. I love our system because every year
0: I look at the same portion I looked at last year uh-huh. and I find something completely new or completely yeah. different or I'm different. I'm a little bit newer, you I, know, or whatever. Yeah. My exp- I have new experiences, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, and it totally re- changes the sermon that I want to create That's for that awesome. week.
1: Yeah, I um, frequently fall back on my experience as a student, as someone with with ADHD and how I always felt that lectures left me out. I had no interest in them. I fell asleep within the first five minutes or just was daydreaming, not paying attention. And so I try to imagine that student there in my pews and how can I find something beyond lecture? Because a sermon as it's traditionally given is essentially just a you know 10, 20 minute lecture. What else can we do? So I'm always I make sure that each Sunday I put in some other element. Sometimes it's a giant visual aid or a video clip or an interactive thing of that nature. And it took some time for the congregation to get used to it, but now they're they love it, you know something, <laughs> something new each week, so that's kind of fun. That is awesome.
0: yeah, yeah. I don't do anything
1: like that. it's I, just, uh, it's, I guess I give a boring lecture. <laughs> I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's boring, but i think I think the lecture format is wonderful and useful for x percent of the world. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that the the other percent, whatever that is, has some type of foothold, right so. How long do you spend in preparation each week? Oh, man. I,
0: I try to give myself anywhere between like uh, four to eight hours to work on it. Okay. Um, you know, my goal is like usually like well, will do like a Wednesday. I'll try to like knock it out by that Wednesday, be done. Okay. And then Thursday, Friday, practice delivering it is a goal. I think I work on, okay. it on a Tuesday. I would if I had time. Yeah. Right. So that's sort of my how I how I work on it every week. And it's a little different for COVID, too, because um, the way I used to do it in the pre-COVID world yeah. is that I would give two to three sermons a month with the other with 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 other weeks being filled with other things like either a story instead of a sermon oh, or a or guest speaker. OK. Right? Yeah. Um, and uh, but when COVID hit, I decided to, to embrace the, the weekly sermon lifestyle and give yeah. a sermon every single week. It's just like a way to just I don't know. Just to improve my sermon writing and just to make sure that I'm doing it. Have Have you liked that? Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I've liked it. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been a good experience. Uh huh. Um, and
1: I've learned a lot in this process of every single week ha- yeah. getting it done. I find that I've learned more doing weekly sermons than I did in seminary, almost because every week I'm studying deep into a passage. Right. Right. And way then, more deeply than I might have if it was just for a paper. I'm like, yeah, I'll do enough to get the grade, you know. But for the sermons, I'm like, I really need to make sure this is all. If nothing else, really accurate to. Right, to right. And attention. I'm doing research
0: yeah. every week too. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm looking at my Torah portion, I'm uh-huh. looking at all the commentary about it, I'm yeah. trying to find people who I like who talk about it just to get those, that spark of that idea of what I want, what I want to talk about
1: right. as well. So it's really. I've heard the rule of thumb. You mentioned eight to 10 minutes and that your sermons are about 10 minutes. And I've heard the rule of thumb. I'm sorry, you said eight to 10 hours. And I've heard the rule of thumb that about an hour of preparation per minute of sermon. Is that really? Yeah. yeah and you kind of hit that with what you said. And I, I would feel I'd do the same. I am between 10 and 20 minutes of a sermon, and it's between 10 and 20 hours per week. Between selecting the passage as part of it for me, I, I tend to do sermon series now. So I'll do like five weeks in a row on a particular passage yeah, or a particular event or current theme. Um, So, you know, selecting the passage and then studying it in depth like crazy and then how does that apply to today and like you said before, what other people do I know and trust that have spoken to it, whether they're historical writers or contemporary scholars or whatever, what do they have to say about it? And so all those things end together and figure out how to to present that. In a fresh way, so, the delivery.
0: Yeah, yeah the delivery. Writing yeah. of the sermon that for me is like half, maybe half of the process,
1: right? Yeah. The other
0: process, the delivery of the sermon.
1: There's, yeah, there's a certain amount of theater craft to it. My, I worked at, in a theater for a lot of my, you know, young adulthood, and it, there's a lot of similarities for sure. It's, but yeah, in, and, in a good way. And what's so funny,
0: I i mean, like in a Jewish context, like uh, anything Jewish in a Jewish sort of prayer experience is not a performance, right? So mm-hmm. no one will ever clap. Yeah, no yeah. Ever, ever clap. No matter how good your sermon is. Uh huh. In,
1: in a Jewish context, n- n- no clapping.
0: No, so no, like
1: nothing. This is an internal wrestling match for a lot of pastors. I don't yeah. know how, how wrestling wrestly you get with it, but I've I've gone fully the other direction in which, if it's anybody else doing anything in the service, I start the applause for them. Oh yeah. Um ooh, ooh. I would never start them for myself, but after someone comes in and, and we have one particular member of our church who will come in and play the cello as one of the reflective uh-huh. moments. I applaud for it and I start going. Because I first of all I can see everyone in the pews wondering, is it okay to clap? <laughs> that was really great. And I would like to what I see it as is they want to show appreciation for something beautiful. So that, Why would I stand in the way? That Show would be preaching. such a faux pas in
0: our congregation. That's if you, you do like a lone clap where everyone will just like stare at you for a moment, right? So that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is not how it's just not how yeah. we we're, it's not how we work in our for our service. It's not the yeah. experience we're going
1: for. Um which is it's so interesting. Yeah. And then you go to some other churches where there's nonstop like celebratory effervescence the whole time uh, and i'm, I'm like that's wonderful right yeah, yeah.
0: i, I kind of want that <laughs> yeah and presbyterians well. have yeah,
1: we presbyterians have this uh reputation for being so like stoic and yeah, yes. quiet and <laughs> and so i i'll try to get people laughing and talking and clapping yeah. it's fun
0: i wouldn't yeah. mind like a feel like hallelujahs thrown out there right. while i give yeah. my sermon i would love that like amens maybe i've gone and guest preached going. at
1: other congregations where they do that and it's fun as heck yeah um uh, shiloh um shiloh baptist they will say yes uh uh-huh and you know back back and forth with you as you preach and i didn't realize i kind of knew it like i I knew that would happen but i didn't realize how that would impact my delivery in that you you pause after every clause (laughs) and so i would say you know and and then i picked up a book and i really loved and they went yeah and I was like, oh, my goodness, I have to wait for them or I'm rudely interrupting it's them. It's interactive.
0: It's more interactive.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'm actually into that. I'm into that. I wish you was use them more into that, too. I just, it was it was a good thing. And yeah. I also love other services where it's quiet and reflective and no one says anything. It's just, I guess it depends on what you're well, used pre, to and pre- what you're But pre-COVID, like,
0: I was literally asking the audience questions during my sermon. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to engage them a little bit in uh-huh. that. So, you know, I'm not against, like, audience participation. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, we're not... In Judaism, we,
1: we, we say that a service is not a performance. And we say that too. And I think it's important to remember, A, that's not scripture, right? I mean, it, it, we can break the rule that it's not mm-hmm. a performance. It could be if we chose to make it so. And B, performance does not equal evil. Performance <laughs> does not equal selfish. Performance does not equal egotistical. For instance, you mentioned that you worked diligently to make it so that your speaking style was flowing and uh, understandable. Yeah. Right? You oh, yeah. overcame a speech impediment. Lifetime of work on that one. So how is that not performance? You made sure that your ability to perform these words in public was audible and understandable and receivable. Now, why would it be? Uh, you probably also had classes where they taught you to modulate the volume of your voice and modulate your inflections so that you could really make your Point, right? I mean, things like that that feel fake when you do them, but they do help you make the point. Well, that's that's performance. You've gone to other places, I'm sure, where the person speaks in a very monotone and halfway volume voice, and you're asleep in the first minutes. That's poor performance. <laughs> this is a so, great format for our uh, yeah, really <laughs> episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so why then do we draw the line at certain types of expressiveness?
0: Matt, I don't, I don't have an answer for you. It's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way it was always done, Matt. I know how much you love yeah, that, sta- that, that sentence. That makes me. <laughs> right there, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, and, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Jokes. You ever try to put uh, jokes in your <gasps> sermons? This last week, I did so many bad jokes, and they were bad on purpose. Do they land at all? It depends uh-huh. uh, Depends on how I'm doing them. Sometimes they're off the cuff and they're ridiculous. And I can see that my wife is the only one laughing yeah. and she's laughing yeah. because it failed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, you know she's yeah. like, oh, that yeah. didn't work. Yeah. Other times it works and it's great. And you feel the give and take. This last week, I did a structure in the format of a Rondi Dangerfield kind of roasting. I had a oh, fictional yes. Aunt Nancy and I was like, oh, my Aunt Nancy's so old. She left a museum and the alarms went off. You know that kind of thing. Oh, I'm supposed to laugh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> I and I even yeah. and no one laughed, and I even said, "Oh boy, I tell you, rough room." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was I, it was intentionally bad. But I do jokes frequently. I think humor is wonderful and useful and essential in a sermon. How about you? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I do jokes too, and
0: I, I could I could never predict what's going to land. Oh, never, neither, never, me neither. But either. also, like you know, a, a sanctuary is not like a chuckle hut, right? You know. <laughs> You know they're they're not actually going there to laugh. Yeah, uh, and I wonder if our if our jokes that we wrote for our sanctuaries if we like went to like a a, com, like a, a comedy club. And deliver them there if we get like a whole different yeah. experience.
1: I don't know. I've always wondered that. Well, one of the rules of comedy is know your audience, right? Yeah. And and so there are tons. When I was writing that sermon last week where I was drawing on that Dangerfield-esque stuff, yeah. there's a lot of Rodney Dangerfield material you can't use in a church. Sure. <laughs> you know? sure so it's just sure. way off color and and terrible. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, the chuckle hut. Let's open a chuckle hut. Let's open a chuckle hut. You so and I can do some <laughs> routines over
0: there and see how they go. That'd be good. A, a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, we have it going yeah. already. All right, so I feel like we. Uh, I think we covered it. We covered sermons. Dang. Uh, there we go. Uh, all right, so we're gonna move now on to our pop theology uh, component of our of what divines us. And this time for pop theology, we're gonna talk about something kind of like interesting uh, called Sermongate. Uh, I think we need some, to explain some background on Sermon Gate yeah. here. So uh, so apparently, there was a, uh, what was it, like a Southern Baptist convention recently where they elected a new uh, leader, new president. Uh, you remember his name? Uh, I think it's Reverend Chucklehut. <laughs> oh,
1: Oh, uh, it's Ed Litton, right? I, I honestly don't remember.
0: Okay. Ed Litton is, a, I think, is the new okay. uh, president of the. Southern Baptist Convention. Right. It was a real contentious convention. I believe it was a very big
1: far-right component that really was trying to... Yes. I mean, the whole Southern Baptist Convention is far-right. It's a question of how much farther right Right. they were going to go, and they took the one that was less (laughs) far-right than the far, 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 far far-right. Okay, okay. So the the, the lesser of the rights. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, he's recently got in trouble uh, because it was discovered that he used a piece from someone else's sermon in his own sermon.
1: And I think it was multiple. I could be wrong about oh. that. Yeah, I think it was more than once, but certainly on the the big one they're talking about it was I think like a here's here's like the the acronym of seven things you go through for a healthy life or something or another and they were Lifted in Directly. order, including several long passages of word-for-word word plagiarism, and he didn't say who, where he got it from, right. in his right. sermon. Yeah.
0: yeah, So we want to talk a moment about um, plagiarizing sermons, right? Yeah. So, so first of all, uh, we're not like scientists; we don't have peer-reviewed yeah. like articles where you know you get in trouble mm-hmm. if you plagiarize something. But through, like, I feel like a institution, like institutional
1: trouble, mm-hmm. right? I guess yeah to be honest I, in in seminary it was the cardinal sin. Well, yeah, well but but and, in but in preaching yeah. uh, it's it's less likely we would ever get caught. I mean rabbinical school <laughs> is like college rules apply, right? right you
0: can't exactly. plagiarize when you're in college. Yeah. You couldn't plagiarize when you're in rabbinical school. But we're talking about sermons here. Right. What you deliver, you know, for your worship service. Yeah. And so there and, and so my my experience is that there is no real like like institutional standard where if someone catches you getting plagiarized you get like in trouble with your particular institution
1: and i think that might be why this is a strange thing making headlines because it, it feels sort of new like i don't know of any pastors that have faced this before and there are things online you can sign up for where they'll send you a sermon text and like you pay for it um and then lots of other places just post their sermon texts online and they're out there yeah, so yeah i mean it's readily available for plagiarism everywhere if you wanted to
0: but 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 let's also point out that like i i use other people's material all the time in, just, in what way I just say where I got it. Well, there you go. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I just say, and my good, you know, my colleague so and so said this, which, yes, or a famous rabbi said this. I mean, yeah. I'm always quoting the greats, you know, you know, our uh-huh. Talmud scholars or stuff like that, right. um, and or Rashi is a famous one, or or you know, Maimonides. Like we have some ancient scholars that are yeah. like the go-to. Yep. Um. So I'm close. I'm I, I'm like constantly quoting. I'm constantly same. quoting.
1: Same. Same. Um, but not I only say, not only the old ones, but this past Sunday I quoted. um an article from the New York Times, sure. like a lot, you know, I kind of structured my sermon around this particular article. And so I quoted that author, but I always, but I always gave his name. Right. Right. I I can't, I couldn't imagine doing what this other guy did of just lifting it and, and saying it. And, and I think what the reason is, not only is plagiarism just in and of itself a, a bad thing, but when you kind of take it apart, it's a combination of theft and lying. So the theft you're you're committing the sin against the author and taking taking their stuff, but at the same time you're doing that, you're lying to your people, you're lying to your congregation because they're entering that moment under the presumption that you're speaking to them from your own experience, your own study those those twenty hours we mentioned before of preparation right, right. they're like the reason we're you know in this kind of covenantal relationship of our clergy role is. They're expecting us to provide certain things and how, how the, the ancient texts interact with their current experience. If they just wanted, you know, that other dude's thoughts, they'd have picked up his book or tuned into his church online. And so it's a it really is, in my opinion, just a lie to your congregation to do that without attributing it. If you're going to attribute it, then great. But' attributing is so easy. It just takes like less than a second to type in.
0: like <laughs> I, then, I know I just, so again, <laughs> say I that name. yeah and
1: then and then the other thing that makes me scratch my head is the Southern Baptist Convention, I I'm about as far from them as I possibly could be politically and theologically. But these folks here elected to their leadership, they're they're educated. They're smart people. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how you can be that smart, how you can have that much education and success in life. And also be so dumb as to think that no one's going to notice. Like, uh, I mean, every teacher in the country has plagiarism software. You can you can just plug it in online, and people say, "Oh, you stole that!" Right away. Why would this guy think he wouldn't get caught? <laughs> That's just. So, in addition to being theft and being lying, it's also just plain dumb. That's like, walk you like robbing a bank without a mask on. Like, well, you're going to get caught then. Put a mask on a bank, got it, check. That's my lesson. That's it. the <laughs> that's one point of bank. my ministry if you're going to rob a bank, wear a mask.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. But I mean, I think in the article that we read about sermon gate, which is on New York Times, they mentioned that, you know, some some, some
1: clergy take 45 hours a week,
0: A well, crazy
1: do, number like that. If you use the rule of thumb of one minute prep per, I'm sorry, one right. hour of preparation per minute. And you do 45 minute sermons. That's fine. Then that could work. Yeah, one thing I found surprising in that article was they said he said he had a staff of people helping him write his sermons. Oh, whoa, what? Yeah, he that was mentioned toward the end. So he would be like, I have five or six like interns or this or that helping me with content. And it seemed to me, I may have, I may have misread it, but it sounded to me like he was trying to kind of soften the blame on himself and putting some on. Oh, you know, my staff gave me this. blame the intern, yeah. But you know, you classic. know, you didn't write it. You just trying. Th- in that case, you're just reading what your staff wrote. Wait, so if you've
0: staff giving you s- content for your sermon, uh-huh. then what
1: is then where then where is your like where where are you? This In is this my sermon. question too. I don't know. Uh, as one who's never had staff to help write sermons, I don't know. <laughs> Man, I want staff to help. Man, now I want yeah. that lifestyle. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I could see, if I had that, I could see saying to your staff, you know, please find me material on these things, Premier, you know, this passage it. on this topic and boil it down. Bring me just the best, you know, the best two pages. Right. All right. right then Then you use that and you formulate your own from that. But yeah, I mean it's weird to have staff to write a sermon.
0: I just I feel like, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about plagiarizing is both it's both um robbing and lying. Yeah. Right. But on the flip side, there isn't. No, I mean, like this guy got caught, but I imagine he's like tip of the iceberg, and of people who didn't get caught. Right. Right. It, it must yeah. happen, and we don't. We just there's no system in place that really that really prevents sermon plagiarizing yeah furthermore you know i feel like before covid i would give a sermon to my community and then that everyone would would hear it yeah and then kind of forget about it it's gone it's It's done done. Uh it's done it's in my it's in one of my files somewhere in my computer but that's it so like a sermon has like a has like a one and kind of done sort of experience to it um and and so i in some ways i I kind of get it i kind of get why, why why you would be tempted to plagiarize um, I don't necessarily get why you wouldn't say where you got it from because it's just, yeah. I mean, that, that's a little silly. But I definitely see, like, the desire, like, oh, my gosh, like, for me to get to my 45 minutes of today, I
1: just, I need material, other material. And this is yeah, works but, really well. But, but then it, I feel like the best thoughts I bring to a sermon are almost always somebody else's. Sure. And once in a while, I'll get one of my own in there that's oh really gosh. good and I'm yeah. proud of it, right? Yeah. I'm like, that's yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. Who? But then i I don't want to, like falsely bolster my reputation by acting like I wrote something when it wasn't it wasn't mine you know that's yeah that that is that's that's that lying and the the false building up of yourself to seem smarter than you are or more faithful than you are or more po- more poetic than you are last week's repeated refrain was joy shared is joy sustained joy hold on let me do the math on that one Joy shared is joy sustained. And again, that wasn't me. That was Adam Grant, who wrote the New York Times article I was uh, referencing frequently. Uh-huh. If I had just said it over and over again and claimed it as my own, that would be such just a, a rude lie. You know, a lie to him, a lie to my congregation. Yeah, yeah. It's... Do you think Adam Grant thought that of himself? Uh, well, he took credit for it. So if not, he plagiarized. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know him. I'll have to look him up later. <laughs> Listen, buddy. <laughs> All right, so we've both come out as strongly anti-plagiarism. That's big surprise. You know, my mom is also a pastor, and we used to to say if we were smart, we would, each of us, like, wait a week behind the other and just take take your (gasps) sermon. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because she was preaching in New York. I'm preaching here. Who would know, right? Uh, Switch sermons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's that'd be clever. We never did, though. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I think that, I think we... We talked a little bit about Sermon Gate. Yeah. It's funny. We, we should find more things we disagree on because on that one, it's just like, know, yeah. We, we agree we, too much we, on yeah. that one. Yeah. Surprisingly. All right. I changed my mind. I am in favor of plagiarism. Now. <laughs> okay. Are you?
0: <laughs> All right. So um, our last bit we're going to uh, is a, a newer segment we call Religious Toolbox. Right? Religious Toolbox? Yes. Religious Toolbox. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Equality Act for our Religious Toolbox and
1: why our religions support it. Uh, do you want to go into a little bit what the, what the Equality Act is? There are already protections in place that makes it illegal to discriminate against people in the public sphere. That's an important distinction, in the public sphere. And these are the members
0: of the LGBTQ
1: community? Well, the current protections are discrimination is illegal if it's done in terms of based on that person's gender or race or religious expression, I believe, or, or how they're framed. And... The the act as it would be put forward now would put the LGBTQIA+ community mm-hmm. under those same umbrella protections. Now the pushback on that when people will say we don't need to do this because there's usually two main threats. First one would be the the Bostock decision makes it un- makes it unnecessary it's already been so this is Bostock versus Clayton Clayton uh, County in and the Supreme Court yeah and if yeah. I understand it correctly that takes care of it so we don't need to add it in and then the second reason would be oh it's my religious freedom to discriminate against people if I want to right Right, hold on. Does that feel like it's my freedom to discriminate? Now, see, th- that's my language that I'm putting on it because I am angry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, the religious freedom side makes their case that they believe it would be overstepping the bounds. <laughs> I'm in a hard spot here. I'm, I'm trying to articulate the opposition's point of view when I find it reprehensible. They they think that they should be allowed to discriminate against people who are gay or transgender because it's their sincerely held religious belief that they don't want to participate, for example, in a wedding ceremony by baking a cake for the reception afterwards. Therefore, they can not do so. Boy, do I long for a day when someone uses religious liberty as a reason to defend their acts of generosity and inclusivity and love and mercy and joy instead of discrimination. I feel like you and I do that all the time. <laughs> right, but, but we're never up there saying, hey, this is my religious freedom, therefore change the laws to accommodate my freedom to be kind. We're yeah. but So whenever you see sincerely held religious beliefs... It gets back to someone wanting to protect their own ability to be discriminatory. And whenever you see the RFRA Act, the RFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, whenever you see that cited, it's because people want to maintain their ability to be discriminatory and keep people out and say no. And in our day and age, you know, right now, that is almost entirely about gay people or transgender people or so, or someone in that, you know, the alphabet soup Um that it, it's almost always saying we need to keep, quote unquote, those people uh, out of our level of acceptance. Mm-hmm. And it pisses me off. That's uh, I mean, to be frank about it, it's, it's just uh, a misuse of religion, a misunderstanding of the separation of church and state. And it's also a, a fake boogeyman. They use it in the bathroom bills to say don't let transgender people into the bathroom when there's been no evidence that there's any danger there. Um, Quite the opposite. People who are transgender are the ones that are targeted, not the ones doing the targeting. So it's a it's a lie. Um, It's based on bad understanding of the separation of church and state because the current anti-discrimination laws don't apply to churches and synagogues. The Catholic Church can tell anybody they want right now, we're not going to hire you to be our priest because you're female. Right. None of these anti-discrimination laws touch that. Churches can do what they want to do. The, you know, the Baptist church right down the road from you here, they have a staff of bunches and bunches. I don't know how many, but a lot. And way down the line, they have people enjoying the benefits of some, uh, some tax laws that apply to clergy. But there are people that are not really clergy, as you and I would understand. they on parsonage? Yeah. Yeah. So they'll get a a housing allowance tax-free, even though what their ministry work is, is on a real blurry line. And so their ability to do that will will continue. And they can also say of those same blurry line areas, not if you're gay. Mind you, I don't support that practice. But they could still do it, even under this new Equality Act. And so when they say something like, oh, this is going to make you have to do this and that within your church, it's simply a lie. They're lying because they want to continue keeping gay people on the outside of society. They don't want to let that in because they view it as sinful in and of itself. Flipping that coin, as you pointed out, how can
0: our religion sort of celebrate everyone in more than just sort of this idea of the Equality Act, but the fact that, like, our religions say to treat everyone with dignity, you know, yeah. with, equ- with equity. Like, what, what is your, like, where do you think that comes from sort of like in your in your religion, in Christianity mm-hmm. Territory. Um where does what come from? The well, like, the dignity? So like so like what so what I've seen is, is people who, who want to discriminate, mm-hmm. they find
1: a way to do it, right? They yeah. say, well, in the Bible it says blah blah you know. So uh, step one is I can go through verse by verse that they cite and show them how their understanding of that verse is not quite accurate. Let's um, do let's yeah. I mean, this is really just toolbox. Sure, so yeah. Let, let's do one. Let's do one. Let's, yeah, go ahead, pick one. Uh well, okay,
0: so <laughs> So it does say, I believe it's in Leviticus,
1: right, that it's abhorrent is the word that's used. I think often the translation would be, it is an abomination. Abomination, thank you. Which an is also a villain in Marvel Comics. He fights against the Hulk. But it's oh. not the same source material. But So it's abomination yeah. uh, for the same gender to love each other, Right. Uh, uh, it says, no, no, not at all. Okay, See, there you so, go. See so I go. So, so this is where language becomes so important. Yes, it does please. not say for the same gender to love each other. My golly, love each other is the heart of Scripture. It says, a man shall not lie with a man uh, as with a woman, is yes. I think how the actual translation yes. goes. That's an abomination. So, That's an abomination. Some important things to pull out of that. Number one, Scripture is always about context, and this comes in the context of differentiating a holy people, and in particular, a holy subset of people within a holy people. So the people of Israel the and the Levites within that, yep. right? Levite yeah. Dickus, right? That's why we call it that and Wait, so what did it's- you call it? Levite Dickus? <laughs> No, you're thinking of the life of Brian. I think of the uh, life of Brian. <laughs> Leviticus. I was, Leviticus. I was pulling that apart. Leviticus.
0: <laughs> oh my god. That's not we're gonna to censor that's you that's this not time. What I heard.
1: Yikes. <laughs> so it, it has a lot to do with how the holy subset of the people of Israel would be behaving. And it also has to do with how the people of Israel were gonna differentiate themselves from the people in Israel the Holy Land, which they had just, let's say, taken, conquered, occupied, right? Not yet. That, not yet. not up, yet, but they're... but They're, they're like, on. they're going to... And they're encountering some people around them, right? Oh my and gosh, they're seeing, so many are saying, yeah. And so a lot of that whole zone... Amalekites, for example, yeah. Edomites. I'm sick of those Amalekites. <laughs> Anything with ites at the end, except Israelites. Um, so uh, they're encountering a whole lot of other peoples, people groups, and they all have their own gods and their own temples and their own worship... Practices. And so a lot of these passages in which we find that one, is it Leviticus 20, uh, 17, 20? Uh, from, right. I'm bad with the numbers. Oh, it's no.
0: Clergy fail. Yeah. <laughs> it's That's a math fail.
1: <laughs> a lot of that has to do with how are we going to differentiate our people from those people?
0: Sure, sure. And even even God says at one point, like, you, you are am which in Hebrew means, like, my treasured people. Okay. Right. So God Adonai, what we call God in Judaism, I lifts lifts up the Israelites in in that way, and and
1: separates, and so separates. the holy, the word yeah. holy has to do with the concept of being set apart, right? Yeah. And so the yeah. holy people are set apart. The practices are, even the items used in worship are set apart and used just for that one special purpose. So. Differentiation is a big thing. The word abomination, we hear that nowadays and we just think it means awful and ugly and evil and terrible. Its original, its usage there is the abomination is the other. It's the thing on the outside, different than our practice, separate from us. Mm -hmm. And when they're being told, and we by extension, don't lie with a man as with another man, this is in the context of a group that was doing that as part of their temple service worship practices. And so Yahweh is saying to the people, don't do that. Don't have as part of your worship service this prostitutional aspect, which personally I I agree with. I do not have as part of our worship service male prostitution. So come on down to First Presbyterian Church. You won't find any prostitution taking place in the worship service.
0: <laughs> I imagine also no money changing will be happening at your at your worship service. You know,
1: we take the offering, so you <laughs> you define that as you will. <laughs> so so when when I say to you, is there a difference between male prostitution and people of the same gender loving each other? I think most people would be able to say yes. There's loads of differences between those two things and yet some translations of the bible will say homosexuality so wait for, so for wait so what you're saying is that in that in that
0: passage of Leviticus which at the moment we don't remember what chapter and verse it is yeah. when it, when it says a male may not lay with another male yeah. like a woman that's prostitution
1: yeah. is what it's referencing uh, temple practices of mm-hmm. male prostitution there's similar stuff in the new testament where you'll see it translated as you know don't do gay stuff (laughs) if you're if you're in the most recent translations um but actually it's referring to a different thing uh it's referring to an exploitative relationship of an older man with a younger child
0: oh don't do Uh, that and often
1: with an economic like overlord type of system where you own this other person it's not slavery but there's a lot of economic pressure and so again I agree. That's bad. Don't do that where there's this power differential. And um, that's not the same as two men loving one another. I also, if I remember correctly, um, there's absolutely no mention in scripture anywhere about two women loving each other. Oh, about two women having sex together. I don't think that's ever mentioned. Okay. Also, the really biblical waiting. depiction of marriage is all over the place. <laughs> you know, uh, It includes concubines. So if we're going to scripture, we're in a world of trouble. It certainly doesn't... Yeah, yeah. there's lots of concubines yeah. and multiple wives. So uh, the problem with this, though, is I, I get off on these, you know, tirades because I've read too much about it. But religious toolbox where we're trying to, like, maybe help people talk to others about it, the listener won't always care to go that deep. If you if they say to you the Bible says homosexuality is wrong and you say show me where and they bring out one of those verses and you say here's why that doesn't yeah. say that. There are about 7 passages in scripture. Which have been called the clobber verses because people use them to hit each other with, like a clobber. Brick. Yeah, clobber. The clobber verses. verses. It's this it, is the first time hearing about this. It's from clobber Matthew ver- Vines. Here you go. I'm not going to plagiarize. Matthew Vines's word, I think, uh, phrase, where because he's a verses. young gay Christian who uh, was who clobbered a lot. I imagine was clobbered by yeah. these verses. So yeah. he said, "I'm going to really study them all," and he demonstrates very academically so, how yeah, each yeah, one is not yeah. really a prohibition um, against homosexuality. I think I think it's a great point, right? If uh, when it comes to religious
0: toolbox, if someone says, you know, yeah. the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin and you say it doesn't, uh, it doesn't yeah. they're not going to be like, oh, you're right. Oh, my goodness. Right. So right. I think yeah. the first
1: thing about religious toolbox aspect of this is to recognize it's not going to be all at once. It's not like like another toolbox item. Like uh, you take out the hammer, you knock in the nail and you're done. Uh, this will most likely be a multi-year process in talking to people. One thing to ascertain is the source of their disdain for homosexuality or just yeah or discomfort yeah is it purely scriptural like ask them if the bible didn't say it would you still be okay with it i mean would you still be against it like imagine imagine you read the bible again and it never mentions anything of the nature of this nature would you still be opposed to homosexuality and that's something people have to wrestle with and they 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 sometimes realize afterwards oh yeah I would just because I don't think it's. But good. I, I don't know. Like I, I, feel, I feel like anything that is a cultural taboo, mm-hmm. it
0: makes you incredibly uncomfortable. Right, right? and I and think so, that's.
1: I think that might be one of the inroads in talking to people, though. Is what is the source of your it's cultural taboo choice like, to consider it a taboo? Because yeah. obviously, look around the country. There's at least fifty percent of the country that does not consider it a cultural taboo but, anymore. But, so but, you're choosing your taboo at but this that's, point. But that's not how our country works.
0: Mm-hmm. Or like you know, especially with with uh, I would say social media, we're all kind of siloed, right? So right. we're only uh, often we're only interacting with like-minded people. Right. You and I, you know, prove that. I mean, we do argue, but <laughs> but we mostly agree. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so I think I think what's fascinating is that you have you know um, you you end up do having these. These different little mini cultures in our yeah. country, yeah, for sure. And you interact with those people, and, mm-hmm. and maybe you were raised all the similar ways, yeah, um, or you have a similar history. I see it being really complicated and, and hard, yeah, to say, you know, that something that like my grandfather was against. I'm against as well. And and I'm uncomfortable with anyone telling me differently about this taboo.
1: Right. Right. And that's and that's that's a lot of like. Well, that's why I'm saying I think it's important that people recognize where their discomfort comes from. If it's just scripture, let's talk about scripture. If it's scripture and also your grandfather. Well, I can't really speak to you about what you've inherited from your grandfather. But I can I can address these particular issues here. I I think I'll make like a maybe a prediction or I'm going to make like a I don't know. My my
0: my guess is mm-hmm. that it's never just scripture, right? It's yeah. never just the Bible. Right. Like the, right. Like they find the thing in the Bible that makes them feel good about the way they believe. Yes. Right. Yeah. So so they're the they all, The people who feel a certain way aren't changed by the Bible. Yeah. Quite the opposite. Right. They they sort of change the Bible. To, because look at the Old may,
1: Testament and how there are, oh, one tooth I think three of those clobber verses are in the Hebrew scriptures. How frequently does the Hebrew scripture talk about the importance of the Jubilee year?
0: Oh, quite often. Oh my gosh.
1: Tons of times. Yeah. How many people do you know that actually observe it? The Jubilee year? Yeah. No one. Zero. Right. How often does it talk about the importance of observing, observing the Sabbath? Well, that's one of the top 10 commandments, right? It's It's right up there. And, (laughs) and most people don't do that. What?
0: Observe the Sabbath.
1: Yeah like in what way in the way that the hebrew scriptures uh, oh, yeah. tell us to okay right okay. i mean people go to church and then they go to work and then they eat, drink and be merry and you know uh, you might you might you paid a little lip service, but you're not doing it according to scripture. Uh, okay, so if right, someone right. is saying I'm against it because scripture tells me to and we're like, well, great. I'm glad you're following scripture. Remember on the 49th year, we're going to forgive all debt and return all property to Jubilee its year. Yeah. Hello. Right. And then they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you're like, well, you're going to hold on to these three small passages that you say prohibits homosexuality, but you're going to ignore this mountain of scripture that says do the Sabbath and the Jubilee year. And when presented with that, they tend to just cover their ears and say, no, on and run away. (laughs) So what we're saying is that it's not necessarily a good religious toolbox
0: method to use.
1: Not always. That's what, yeah. Yeah. So I think what you start with is the listening. You say, what is the source of your discomfort? Is it just scripture? Is it something else? Yeah. And a lot of times it's something else. And uh, the other thing that I've seen really work is relationships. You, You hear so often about people who are politicians who are opposed to equal rights for gay people. And then, lo and behold, their son comes out as gay and they change their tune. I think Dick Cheney is famous for that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, A, you're like, well, it shouldn't have to hit you that close to care. But okay, we'll take it, you know. Um, And so if it's not a loved one coming out, sometimes it can be learning to know someone who already is out. And like you said, we're so siloed because well, it's uh, a dangerous situation. There's so many people who are gay who came from that background. Oh, right, right. And yeah. then they left it, right? Yeah. Because yeah. The, the word homophobic, I don't hear that as afraid of. Um, I think back to chemistry class where things are hydrophobic, <laughs> right? You put water on it and it it does not it, allow it, the it water says, to come it's in. It's like deuces.
0: See you later. Right. Yeah,
1: it, yeah. Out of here. And, yeah. and so... Why would you stay in a place that tells you your very nature is sin and evil? So, I, I yeah, I, I think it, it can start with relationships. The hard part being uh, you don't want to ask a gay person to make themselves vulnerable so frequently that they're going to get kicked around. Um, you know, that's really hard. So my relationship with a person who is anti-LGBTQ equality, I'll, I'll take that hit on their behalf.
0: Yeah, You know, because it's not
1: hitting me personally so much, but it's, but it takes a long time. It takes years and it might not ever work. Right. A big part of it is, and I think I might've said this about other conversations, but I think this is, this is part of why I'm too active on social media
0: and part of (laughs) why
1: I am too vocal in public situations that I think we have a large secret audience. Let's say I just made up that term. So, I, it's not plagiarism. So, it's Matt Schultz, a Matt yeah. Schultz term. I'm quoting myself. After Matt Schultz, uh, watch out. We have a secret, secret audience. audience, yeah, of people who are listening and or reading the things that we're saying in conversations with others. And you might not be convincing the person you're talking to, but there are people near you listening. Maybe you're at like a, a wedding table, you're right, and you're at a table of eight, and you and I, you and the other person are talking, and there's six people listening in. Of those six, there might be two people who are undecided on the issue, and they're going to hear you and understand and care about your arguments. Two others might be gay, and they might have never known that a rabbi would have accepted them as they are. Sure. And they're not going to put themselves out there because they're in a social situation where they don't know everybody, and they're going to say, I'm going to stay quiet. They don't have, have to. to right? Uh, they're not obligated But to. lo and behold, they've heard someone defend them and say that you don't have to choose between being faithful. And being gay, you can be both.
0: Right. Right. And right.
1: so those those secret audiences are out there all over the place. And it can be much easier to just say, well, I'm not gay, so I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to go about my day and not get involved in this. But in the long run, it matters. It kind of, mm-hmm. We talked about counter speech. You know, it, it matters right. that that there are people speaking for this compassionate truth and not just the people who are the targets of the lie. Right. Right right cuz they they get enough they catch enough flack just for being who they truly are they're catching flack all day long so it's 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 only right that we stand in the way once in a while as allies
0: yeah yeah, yeah. well in Judaism we um, we usually go back to this sort of thing that happens in Genesis where uh, where God actually says like everyone is uh b'tzelem Elohim a uh, mm-hmm. god made uh, man or humankind in the in the image of God right and uh, and so essentially that means that like every single person Mm-hmm. In the universe, if you will, yeah. is is a reflection of our God. I don't know, but that's but you take that too, like you take that to like a complicated level too, right? Because that includes everyone that hates as well. Yeah, yeah, right, uh-huh. right. So, uh, so in that way, you have to be sort of honest in this idea that like we're all created in God's image, um, and that means that every mm-hmm. everyone's an individual. Every
1: everyone deserves, you know, to. Not it's, <laughs> uh, the phrase "God is love." I know is clearly stated in the New Testament. Is yeah. that in the Hebrew Scriptures as well? I forget if well, it's God, well, in the, um, written as such. Uh,
0: it's at one point. It's like you know, God says, uh, uh, "Love your neighbor or your fellow sure. as yourself." I yeah. am, I am God, right? Okay. And in and Proverbs, it's
1: at one point it says like, "Love, um, men's all
0: faults." Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah. So we yeah. trying to do get the love theme happening throughout.
1: And I think it was your your mom wrote something online about the rabbi who summed up scripture while standing on one foot? Yeah, that's Hillel. That? Okay. Hillel, yeah. So there's a little story about how like... It's almost like a challenge, like a dare. Can right, you...
0: right. Some, so someone breaks into Hillel's home. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know yeah. it started with entering. Yeah, I think, right. it, I think it starts with breaking <laughs> and entering and says, you know, can you teach me uh, about Judaism while I stand on one foot? And Hillel's like, sure. Like, you know, don't do unto others you wouldn't do yourself. And the rest is commentary. Now go study, nice. right? Nice, right? Yeah. And then, uh, and then there's there's, another, there's another part where he went to Shammai, who's Hillel, sort of like I don't know, rivals. They're rivals, yeah. Okay. Shammai says you can't do that in one foot. You're ridiculous. Uh-huh. But Hillel says you can. Just you yeah. know, be kind. Essentially, right? That's right. What
1: Hillel says, uh, well, yeah. Okay. So and then, uh, then being made in God's image. I put that side by side with the New Testament saying, that "God is love." We're yeah. made in the image of love, and yeah. I think what you're saying there about summarizing all the law and the prophets of, love your neighbor as yourself and love God. Um, love is that ultimate rubric by which we uh, understand whether we're in the following the proper way of God. And when it comes to homosexuality, I find that it's it's obviously. <laughs> this, this sounds dorky. It's obviously our side that's being more loving, and the way that they they meaning those who are opposed to LGBTQ equality, the way they try to tweak it is they say, "Well, love the sinner, hate the sin." I have never seen that play out as love, and, and and so when it comes to the actual fruits of the position, I've never seen the the group that says "love the sinner, hate the sin" actually result in loving actions. Because hate is half of the strategy, and, and that just can't work. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think uh, I think it's really important to, as you and I, as clergy and as faith leaders, is is to illustrate the fact that like your choices and your belief system should come from a place of love. Yeah, not from yeah. a place of hate, not from a place of discrimination.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, and I know I, I think they recoil at hate because they say I don't feel hate for them, and I and I take them at their word. But I do think they feel like it's icky and gross, right? They they have a certain revulsion that they'll express and they'll say things like, it's not natural, which is their way of saying, it feels weird to me, right? Right? And so it can be helpful to, again, in listening and in conversation to help them <laughs> unpack, that word is kind of funny to me, but help them unpack that feeling. Why do you feel kind of repelled by it? You know... Right? <sighs> I think we have like only like a few minutes left here. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but
0: I also think that like they ha- they um people often will have like a universal understanding of of their environment, right? Mm-hmm. Bad people go to hell. Yeah. Good people go to heaven. Mm-hmm. If you're a sinner, you go to hell, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you're good, you go to heaven. Who gets to choose? Who goes to hell? Who goes to heaven? often is chosen by their their environment their society wherever they are like their little silo. Yeah. Um and so I I see the stakes being really high for them. Right? That's I a see great the, point. Yep. I see the stakes being that like they, they think oh my gosh like they think their gay neighbor is going to go to hell yeah. unless
1: right. you save them.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. And that and that and that sort of worldview is very problematic but yep. also very hard to step out of. Yep. Right? If if you if you live in this sort of like this I don't know this in this cosmic universe where everything is binary like that yes you you believe that's everything around you is that yeah right so how do you step out of that and say and 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 tell this person well well maybe the universe world doesn't work that way yeah. necessarily
1: the way that you understand it After, I, I yeah I don't think uh, kind of like what we said before it's not an all at once that's a mark, right right because right. process I, I of, feel,
0: exactly I, I feel yeah. like by saying that uh, for them to even believe it you literally like they, they have to like no longer believe in gravity as well like I mean literally
1: right, gravity yeah. is just as just as apparent to them mm-hmm. as what as their belief system for this is. In, in the long term and I don't know how common this mindset is within Judaism but in in American Christianity, it's common amongst the more conservative evangelical set. And I think the inroad, the, the long-term prescription is biblical study. They, they already are saying, I believe this because of the Bible. And we have a great inroad there to say, well, good, let's study it together. Because here's what the Bible actually does not say. It does say. <laughs> right. But that takes years. But the shorter, the shorter uh, symptomatic treatment is grace. God gives grace. God gives grace. You don't have to save that person's soul. God is going to treat them with mercy and love and understanding. Uh, and if you really believe that everyone who is living a little bit sinfully is going to hell, that's a hundred percent. That's everybody, you know. And so, if again, if you looking at their own belief system, you can see some of these uh, internal contradictions that they don't actually. They haven't always thought through, right? They've been given the ten-minute sermon, and that's all they've had, and so they're like, "There, that's I'm going to base my whole life on this book that I haven't even read all that much, right?" And so, and so you can find these things and say, "Let's start with grace and love," uh, which is what God is 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 really putting out there, and from there we can start kind of backfilling the understanding of it.
0: Yeah, and in Judaism, you know, we don't proselytize, right? Right. So, uh, so we say like, you know, as long as you're
1: living a more ethical life, like, you're doing good. You don't yeah. have to be Jewish to do that. Well, and, yeah, and, and you hit the nail on the head with saying that the, starting with love and is, is essential, and honestly, the New Testament scriptures are completely on board with that, to yeah. say how you live your life is essential, and gigantic, and an, a huge part of it, but the, Again, that that more conservative evangelical set, it all became about the individual decision to say, I invite Jesus into my heart, and then it's like an on-off switch, and then it almost quit mattering what you did afterwards. Yeah. Which which just does not hold up to the witness of Scripture, and it doesn't hold up to just being a decent human.
0: Yeah. All right, well— well, there, I guess that's that's <laughs> Pastor Matt and Rabbi Abram love hearing themselves talk for an hour. <laughs> uh, our I wasn't listening to myself. I don't know <laughs> <anymore>. <laughs> uh, Okay, so um, first a couple thank yous. Uh, thank you to the Mitra brothers for thank helping you. Us with all the music and sound editing for this. And uh, thank you, James Brown, for the awesome logo thank you, thank you. That you designed for us. Um, and you can see Matt and, and myself in action. Uh, we're still online for a little bit longer, and so you can go to uh, frozenchosen.org and uh, see
1: us there. Um, or uh, I think it's uh, Beshalom, Alaska is our Facebook name. Uh,
0: Matt, how can we see you in action?
1: Uh, we are meeting in person with a whole bunch of restrictions, but also we are still online. We'll be forever. Um, so every Sunday morning, 10 a.m. for the live stream or just Google First Presbyterian Church of Anchorage, Alaska, and we'll pop up and you can find us in various forms.
0: All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening this far,
1: and uh, we will see you next time. Oh, you know what? will be, though, uh, because I'll be away for a bit. Are we going to be on schedule next time? Yeah, we'll be on schedule next time. We'll see you next time. I have a plan, yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye.